Oh, give me your attention. There's been a new invention. It isn't any larger than an adding machine. It's only fair to mention, though it's a new invention. It's one that you have heard about, but few have ever seen. It doesn't do division, and it doesn't multiply. It doesn't want to be a bird, it doesn't try to fly. It came about because they made a big atomic bomb. The new invention's clicking, and because of all its ticking, I know where the idea came from. Hi out there, welcome to Dame is a Four Little Word. I'm Lindsay. And I'm LP. And today we're doing Dame Scientists. Who are you doing? I'm going to be raising my Star Island single by Smutty Nose to the Harvard computers, who were not computers, they were ladies. Okay. And I'm raising my glass of dark cousin to Ujon Shun, uh, but I'm just going to call her Madame Bloom. Uh, she was a pretty badass nuclear physicist who, among other things, disproved the conservation of parity in nuclear physics. And I'll start, but before I begin, I'd like to thank Bill Stanford of the MIT and UMass Lowell Physics Departments for basically explaining the whole lot of the physics to me on this. So I guess I'm also drinking to Bill. All right. Cheers. Yay, Bill. All right. So Madame Wu lived 50 years of her life in a little apartment on Claremont Avenue in New York with her husband, Luke Yuen, who she'd met at U Berkeley. Both Wu and her husband were physicists and had a son who's also a physicist. She was the first woman to be elected president of the American Physical Society, and she was the expert in beta decay. Beta decay is this curious emission of electrons from radioactive nuclei, but more about that later. Madame Wu's life's work involved investigating nuclear fission and uncovering the secrets of one of the fundamental forces of the universe. So, not not too shabby. Madame Wu was born in near Shanghai, China in 1912 and attended the school her parents had started until she'd got to fourth grade. Her father had had a Western style education. He was one of the few who had had this in China at that time and in starting the first school for girls in the region, he and Madame Wu's mother had to pay a lot of door-to-door visits to convince people that their daughters should receive an education equaling that of their boys. So pretty badass. Yeah. Her father also participated in the 1911 Republican Revolution to depose the Qing Dynasty. And then later he was involved in the revolt against the first president of the new republic he had fought for. Uh, This military general dude called um, Yuan Shikai. Wu's father sounds in general, though, like a real gem of a father. He believed in human rights and equality for women, and he encouraged his bright daughter to pursue her love of science. She graduated at the top of her class at boarding school, and while living in the all-girls dorm there, she plucked up some of her neighbor's physics and maths books and became hooked to especially physics. Then she got her bachelor's of science in 1934 from National Central University in Nanking, where she focused on maths her first year and then physics from then on out. While still a student at the National Central University, though, in 1931, Japanese forces had invaded Manchuria in northeastern China as a result of depression in Japan and in an attempt to gain more natural resources to support their growing militarization and expansion. Madame Wu, who wasn't what you would call a political activist at the time, nevertheless, was still one of the student leaders who occupied the Chinese president's snowy front lawn, demanding a meeting. Wu and her group eventually won their meeting with the president himself that night. 
and they utilized this meeting to tell them that he needed to use more force against the Japanese. Something that actually didn't happen is the Japanese eventually just dropped out of the League of Nations and occupied the area around Manchuria, but we could talk a lot about the failures of the League of Nations another time. <laughs> um, in 1936, Wu's passion still lay with physics more than revolutionary activity, though, and she immigrated to the United States to study. Originally, she meant to attend the University of Michigan, but once she landed in San Francisco, she decided she'd like to attend Berkeley instead, both because she'd fallen in love with San Francisco, Berkeley's physics department, and because U of M had a reputation for being a bit prickish to women, apparently. <laughs> she studied at UC Berkeley with E.O. Lawrence, who was the inventor of the cyclotron, which is a type of particle accelerator. However, in another article I read, he was just the one who manufactured and patented it, and the actual inventor was this Austro-Hungarian physicist named Leo Szilard. Anyway, Madame Wu worked with this Lawrence dude who was still quite a badass inventor or not. While things were going well for her in Northern California, things for her homeland and her family were getting much bumpier, as Japan had by this time upped the ante on their invasion of China. But Wu kept on with her work in physics despite her inability to communicate with her family, and in 1940 she received her PhD in nuclear physics from Berkeley, and also she married her husband Luke at this time. Not long after, she scored teaching jobs at Smith and Princeton, where she worked for about two years until 1944, when a new and edgy opportunity came along. Can you guess what it is? Can you guess? 1944, United States, World War II. Hmm, huh. <laughs> ah, damn it, damn it. Okay, so she was doing great work in nuclear fission. Okay, and nuclear fission can refer to either nuclear reaction or radioactive decay. Wu's expertise fell under the umbrella of radioactive decay, as her prowess was in beta decay. She was attracting the attention of the physics community and the U.S. Army for her work, and so in 1944, da-da-da-da-da, she began working on the research staff at the Nash Building on Broadway in what is now the notorious Manhattan Project. But while at the Manhattan Project, she devised the vital, and some sources I said, say basically the procedure that was necessary for the creation. She developed this procedure for the creation of the world's first atomic bomb, which separated uranium-235 from uranium-238. Yeah. So she developed a procedure to separate the uranium. So, but think about it. In an ironic atomic twist, Wu eventually got some of the retribution she had initially sought in college against Japan for them attacking her homeland. Yikes. Yeah. Um, oh, you think she would have really wanted it to come off that way? <laughs> I have no idea, but you have to you have to love the irony. I mean, oh no, um, is she another one of those. I hate how like they, they most of these people they don't have any biographical information on. You know what I mean? Like, did mm-hmm. she ever write or comment any on what she no. thought about? I'm getting ahead of myself. Sorry. No, and maybe I'm getting ahead of it, but I, you can't help but appreciate the irony in the whole thing. Um, she was yeah. raised. She did. She was raised to be very nationalistic in the sense that she loved her culture. Her parents raised her this way, mm-hmm. and she had protested that China wasn't being forceful enough with Japan. Perhaps the most important work she did for physics was in 1956, when she disproved the conservation of parity in weak force interactions such as beta decay. Okay, so to begin, a way that quantity and conservation laws in physics are related is by using these symmetries, like in the one postulated by the conservation law of parity. So in the field, they have these mathematical laws for symmetries that just let us understand more about the processes or interactions among particles, especially subatomic particles. 
These laws for symmetries are used to understand how all the forces relate with one another. So the symmetries connect all the forces together. The four fundamental forces are gravity, electromagnetism, and the strong and weak forces. The weak force being where Madame Wu did her most important work for physics. In physics, these fundamental forces are basically just the ways that individual particles interact with one another. So they're also called the fundamental interactions. And a lot of physicists believe that there's one unifying force or interaction controlling these four others. Uh, the weak force consists of super powerful interactions which are at work in the heart of an atomic nucleus or in the radioactivity that occurs in the potassium in a banana, for example. The weak interactions are also responsible for the phenomena called beta decay, of which Madame Wu was again the expert in. Beta decay is a result of these weak force interactions. So Wu's expertise in this is partly what made her so capable of putting the experiments together for testing. Also, it turns out that the lady mathematician I did in episode 9, Amy Noether, mm -hmm. has an important connection with Madame Wu's work. Mad oh, Amy Noether's no, I mean, Noether's mathematical theorem gives us the conservation law of angular momentum. This law, as it turns out, predicts all conservation laws based on similar symmetries. So in her theorem, Emmy Noether makes a general statement about the way that conservation laws are related to symmetries, and Wu extrapolates from this general mathematical statement of Noether's. Wu basically extrapolates the lack of symmetry in weak interactions from Noether's theorem. Okay. Um, but first, we should probably learn a little bit more about parity. Uh, the parity law within quantum physics says that two mirror image systems behave in identical fashions. Okay. In chemistry and biology, they call it chirality. Before Wu, though, everyone in the physics world just presumed that everything was symmetrical in parity transformations. Uh, because of Wu's experiments, we know that the processes are either symmetric or not under a parity transformation, which was a groundbreaking realization for the field. Okay. Okay, so what the fuck is a parity transformation? Um, <laughs> well, first I'll give you the definitions I read, and then I'll give you how it was explained to me in hopefully what are simpler terms. <laughs> so parity transformation is the process by which one right-handed coordinate system is translated into a left-handed coordinate system, and the physical laws are still obeyed. For example, if you put a square in the mirror, it looks like a square and conserves parity. This is parity conservation, and despite the translations from the actual square object to the mirror image object, they still maintain their symmetries, and despite the translation, they still obey the same physical laws, right? Mm -hmm. This principle of parity conservation was, before Hulu, again, accepted as a law of nature, as it is conserved with all the other forces, like electromagnetism and the strong force and gravity. Mm -hmm. So, non-conservation of parity, which Wu proved in weak force interactions. Bill Sanford gives us a good explanation for <laughs> understanding the difference between, I guess, both conserved and non-conserved parity. He explains it as a physical process that is, allowed in, that is allowed in front of you, but its mirror image is not physically allowed. So, imagine some force being applied to a block of wood in front of you. Mm -hmm. The wood is going to accelerate up. In a mirror, the force is still up and the block moves up as well as this is physically allowed inside the mirror. Okay, so then imagine in front of you a force being applied in the left direction to the block of wood and the block also accelerates in the left direction and this is also physically allowed. Next, imagine force being applied in the right direction and then the wood accelerates in the right direction and this is physically allowed. In the case when parity is not conserved though, you would observe something quite different. 
Imagine a force exerted on a block in front of you in the left direction that causes the block to accelerate to the left, right? But in the mirror, the force is now to the right of the block. Okay. But the block still accelerates to the left. Okay. Okay. Aside from making so, my head ache, okay. yeah. Um, <laughs> it also violates new. It is, violates Newton's second law of motion. I was gonna actually ask about that. <laughs> Okay, um, that any object which experiences a force will be accelerated in the same direction of that force with a magnitude proportional to that force and inversely proportional to the mass of the object, also known as F equals MA. So Wu's experiments proved that there is precisely this violation of parity with weakly interacting particles, pro proving that some particles in the weak force have what's called handedness. So if the object in the mirror image is different from the object itself, then the object is said to have handedness, and the two no longer obey the same physical laws, like in the last example with the block of wood. Mm -hmm. So Wu's experiments just prove that the weak force has this handedness, and that basically the weak force interactions in basically in the laws of physics, the laws of physics in these weak force interactions are affected, and the it's affected by the handedness of the particles involved in this. Regarding beta decay, which are the result of weak force interactions, and which Madame Wu observed in her 1956 experiment, Mr. Bill Stanford explains that because some of the particles involved have an intrinsic parity, and because parity is not conserved in weak force interactions like these, then the observed result is this asymmetry in the motion of the emitted particles. So instead of an equal amount of going right and left, there are slightly more going in one direction. This realization was a huge game changer because it means that there are other things happening with the weak force interactions, which make it so that an asymmetry rather than a symmetry is observed in beta decay. As for where the necessity for Wu's experiments came from, the first doubts about whether there is conservation of parity and weak interactions came from these two theoretical physicists from Columbia called Dr. Li and Dr. Yang. They theorized that what had been thought to be two different elementary particles called the theta mason and the tau mason were in fact the same particle, which because of Wu's experiments, they now call the k mason particle. In the beginning, though, the theta and tau mason particles showed opposite parity, so they were asymmetrical. So people just simply supposed they had to be two different particles. But they were really connected. They were two halves the, of the same thing. Exactly. Because she showed that they could be asymmetrical, whereas everyone thought that particles could only be connected if they were symmetrical. Totally. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And these two guys were the first ones to suspect it. They were theoretical physicists. Mm -hmm. Li and Yang were highly suspicious about this way back before the experiments. They just needed someone to test their theory. So they found Wu. They organized for Wu to lead her team in this experiment at the NBS lab in D.C. And Wu and her team's efforts proved Li and Yang's theory correct. And through experimentation, Wu wholly transformed this system that assumed the conservation of parity in weakly interacting particles. But at the time, everyone was like, what? And Europe and America were scandalized. <laughs> they barely had they barely had time to call bullshit on the team's findings, though, before Madame Wu and her team uh, had already devised and performed a second experiment to check it and had come up with the same findings. So the cries of doubt waned a little bit. Well, they waned completely eventually, and finally everyone had no choice but to accept it, and they were eventually like, all right, all right. We <laughs> accept that there's a non-conservation of parity during parity transformation in the weak force, and this is where everyone is today. 
um, Wu's work is important for a number of reasons. One main reason being that the conservation of parity that she disproved had brought with it a whole bunch of theoretical restrictions for understanding subatomic particles. And her work has since led to a wide array of unanticipated research. For example, how now in physics you can even seriously talk about higher dimensions? You couldn't do that. So while Li and Yang had theorized that the principle of parity conservation is broken in weak interactions, it was Wu's moxie in beta decay and designing beautiful experiments that had actually provided the proof, I mean, or the proof of, of the disproof, I guess we could also say. Yet Li and Yang alone were given the Nobel Prize for this whole thing in 1957. <gasps> yeah, why this was the case, of course, we can only speculate about now. Is it like is experimental physics any less worthy of the Nobel Prize in theoretical physics? Mm, no, this certainly wasn't so. the case. In two in two thousand one, when Wolfgang Ketterel won his experimental research, he won the Nobel Prize for his research in realizing the Bose-Einstein condensation in nineteen ninety five. Yeah. Hmm. So what the fuck? But she did, however, receive numerous honors and awards throughout her life. She was the first woman to be given an honorary doctoral degree in physics from Princeton, and she was the first woman to receive the Comstock Award of the U.S. Academy of Sciences. Yeah, just to name a few. And she also, her book called Beta Decay, which, uh, surprise, was about beta decay, uh, is still the authoritative text on the subject. Wow, Um, awesome. Yeah. She continued to lecture and encouraged young women in science after her retirement from Columbia University in 1981. And she died in February 1997 at the age of 84. Many things I read called her the most admired female scientist in the country, though I think it's just better to call her one of the most admirable scientists, period. <laughs> sex is. Well, yes. <laughs> She's pretty badass. So on, on the Manhattan Project thing, like, she was the one that figured out the mechanism to extract, I guess, certain particles to make, you said it was one form of uranium into another, and that was crucial to being able to refine it correctly? She needed to separate them. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, I guess, like, whenever you hear, you know, you hear about, like, uh, always in the news, like, in Iran or whatever, who they found a scientist or whatever who's able, who they've brought in someone who's able to to separate uranium. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what she developed. Thanks a lot. <laughs> You're welcome. Sorry. Okay. to the very big, I'm going to be telling you about uh, the Harvard computers, otherwise known by more indelicate people as Pickering's harem. Towards the end of the 19th century, uh, the combination of more and more powerful telescopes and the perfection of photography was leading to a new glut of information for astronomy. Massive projects started up at last to at last collect photographic information on the stars whose movements could only previously be recorded on paper and subject to memory. Uh, One of the astronomers involved in the collection of this information, who would later be the administrator of what I'm going to tell you about, was Edward Charles Pickering. These were projects to take the night sky, painstakingly calibrate the telescopes to follow a section of the heavens, and transform the stars to black dots, photo negatives on fragile glass plates. After some (laughs) years of work... (laughs) 
there was a plethora of raw data that was sorely in need of further categorization before it could be properly analyzed and theorized about. So in the 1880s, Harvard University was given a large charge on the account of the Henry Draper Foundation to catalog and categorize this massive data, and Pickering was tapped to lead this. He was a former physics teacher at the Institute who dabbled in inventions as well. Up until this point, stellar brightness was measured by a device that projected a bit of lamplight onto a mirror next to the reflection of a star. The astronomer would then measure this by way of shielding the lamplight until the two appeared to match, and recorded the amount it had to be dimmed to calculate the brightness of the star. This is the technology that we were dealing with at this point. Then Pickering invented a device that would let the user use the more constant and universal, or, you know, so we thought, yardstick of the North Star to measure from. So star map's accuracy would no longer be at the mercy of how much lamp oil the individual astronomer had decided to use the night he went to measure in. But Pickering needed a different skill set for his new job, which was how to get most of the catalog done with the funding he was given for the benefit of astronomy as a whole. So he mused, a great savings may be effectuated, by employing unskilled and therefore inexpensive labor, of course, under careful supervision. So all this precise work had to be done as flawlessly as possible and as inexpensively as possible. These days it would be trusted to silicon and circuits, computers. Um, in those days, the word was the same, but the minds involved were flesh and blood. It has been said that two things happened to make American astronomy dominant in the 20th century. Uh, the first one is, the first part of this phrase is referring to a fundraiser and astronomer, George Everett Hale, and Pickering you just mm -hmm. met. But it was said, Hale discovered money, and Pickering discovered women. <laughs> <laughs> there is a story, perhaps apocryphal, of Pickering getting mad with the male postgrad student he'd been assigned to as a helper. Pickering told the lad that his housekeeper could do a better job than him. To prove the point, he gave said housekeeper <laughs> the grad student's job, and she was better at it. <laughs> what? God, everything I've been told. <laughs> what? <laughs> I could... Damn it. It's so cute. <laughs> yeah. The real story, though, more likely was just that Pickering had noticed that his housekeeper's intelligent intelligence was wasted pushing a broom. This woman was named Wilhelmina Fleming. She was a recent immigrant to America from Scotland, and she dabbled in teaching over there, but when she got to America, her husband left her with their new child, so she took up a job at Pickering's house as, you know, a domestic servant. She later, while working under Pickering, picked out the horsehead nebula while staring at one of these plates, but the discovery wasn't actually attributed to her for, you know, decades. Everyone else was more than happy to take the credit. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever his more enlightened ideas for his era on women's intelligence, Pickering certainly didn't miss the fact that he could pay them less and they would still do wonderfully precise jobs, while any men he hired to do the same price would have gotten bored and quit or tried to use their work there to advance their own names in the field of science. Okay. So the expanding department was known as the Harvard Computers, or some more vulgarly as Pickering's Harem. Um, at its height, there was about 40 women employed there. Wow. The group once wrote a parody uh, song about their job to the tune of uh, one of the songs from the HMS Pinafore. They wrote this back in 1879. The chorus of it went, We work from morn till night, computing is our duty. We're faithful and polite, and our record book's a beauty. <laughs> For the most part, the women were basically employed to count dots, the stars, notice patterns, and leave the theorizing about what they were finding to tenured astronomers. Wilhelmina wrote of this, If one could only go on and on with original work, looking to new stars, variables, 
classifying spectra and studying their peculiarities and changes, life would be a most beautiful dream, but you come down to its realities when you have to put all that is most interesting to you aside in order to use most of your available time preparing the work of others for publication. However, whatsoever thou puttest thy hand to, do it well. Nevertheless, some of these women did make their mark rather than just procuring data for others to theorize with. Some of the labor that was involved was unskilled women that were looking for more money to support themselves, but some of them were women who were in, you know, graduate studies at Radcliffe or Wellesley or any of those area colleges that were doing this for credit. So, mm -hmm. you know, they weren't quite as forgotten. Two of the other recruits to the Harvard computers were Annie Jump Cannon and Antonia Maury. Annie was a Wellesley grad in physics with a pronounced interest in, spe in spectroscopy. Just as a point of reference, a spectroscope is used to split a beam of light or radiation into the spectra that make it up. That'll come in handy later for you now. <laughs> as a side note, early in college, Annie had been stricken partly deaf by scarlet fever she'd caught in the cold Massachusetts winter. She'd been taking grad courses at Radcliffe when she met Pickering and was offered a job amongst the Harvard computers in 1896. As for Antonia, well, Henry Draper hadn't just left his money. He'd also left another bit of help in the format of a troubled, difficult, and possibly brilliant niece, Antonia. She was a Vassar grad, and she was hungry for further study. Uh, lest you think that only men involved in science are subject to headbutting, the struggle to come about with a classification for these stars was a heated one. Wilhelmina Fleming had been working on, a pre on preliminary parameters for this before Annie took it over for her, but Annie and Antonia had their disagreements about how to refine this classification system. Annie's version that she worked on with Pickering concentrated for the most parts on the star's spectral qualities. The colors and ratios and lines between, between the colors that we see when we hold a prism up to our sun's light are different from those that are seen when different stars' lights are put through the prism. And the differences there is what the department was classifying the stars on. Mm -hmm. So uh, Wellesley had a wonderful like bio section on, on Annie Jump Cannon, um, which was very helpful in me in understanding what it is she was about. But it also had... the cutest thing she'd I guess in some time I want to say it was like it was sometime in the 1900s when she sent her Christmas card to her friends you know I'm assuming they were probably all sending her oh you know my kid is doing this now my kid's doing that and she sent a little note called the story of starlight explaining what her job was <laughs> <laughs> but she wrote about it uh the photograph does not show the colors, but what is more important, it does show the presence of fine dark lines, a few in some spectra and numerous in others. These wonderful dark lines have become a veritable happy hunting ground for the modern astronomer. So basically, the fine dark lines help those looking at a spectrograph see the types of energy of the photons that have escaped the atmosphere of the star and traveled to our planet. Where there are dark lines, it means that the photon could not escape the atmosphere or interacted with the correct element to transform them to energy. We know enough about the elements that these spectrographs are like fingerprints that can tell us about the elements that are present in the star. Antonia was intent on a different aspect of these lines. Uh, she rather bullheadedly kept to her own system of measurement that was different from Annie's, or at least modified while doing her own work on those glass plates. She was intent on not just where these dark lines were, but whether their borders were crisp or hazy, insisting that those with the same sorts of borders should be grouped together. Her difficulty to work with led her relationship with Harvard to be cut short, though she still worked with them intermittently. She was right in thinking that how the borders of these dark lines appeared had a correlation with what the stars were made of. In fact, another astronomer, Eigner Herzsprung, <laughs> built off of what 
she theorized to form his own theories of dwarf and giant stars, saying that to ignore these borders was nearly the same thing as if the zoologist who had detected the deciding differences between a whale and a fish would continue in classifying them together. Mm-hmm. Her work also later held meaning to the fields of quantum mechanics and to Hubble's discover of the universe as an expanding one, but more on that later. Though much later in 1922, Annie's classification was modified to include Maury's addition, it is still largely Annie jump cannons as well as Pickering's system that is used today called the Harvard classification system. The scale from bluest and hottest to reddest and coldest is O-B-A-F-G-K-M, dubbed as Oh Be a Fine Girl, Kiss Me. I'm guessing not by Annie herself as the abbreviation to remember it by. Nowadays, there are a few more memory devices for this that are more waggish still. Officially, Bill always felt guilty kissing Monica, and only bored astronomers find gratification knowing mnemonics. Um, More recently, actually, two other classes have been added, L and T, which are stars so dim that they go into the infrared spectrum and can only be detected by radio telescopes, which is why no one knew about them back back that long ago. (laughs) So she wrote in that same adorable Christmas card letter, The spectra of more than 200,000 stars have been studied. The results will help to unravel some of the mysteries of the great universe visible to us in the depths above. They will provide material for investigation of those distant suns of which we know nothing, except as revealed by rays of light traveling for years with great velocity through space, to be made at last to tell their magical story on our photographic plates. Uh, I was rather modest of her to use the passive tense there. Depends on the source you read, but between 200,000 and 400,000 of those stars were classified by Annie herself. Wow. Some said she could categorize three in a minute. The later Mm. astronomer Cecilia Payne described Annie's ability as, She had an amazing visual recall, but it was not based on reasoning. She was like a person with a phenomenal memory for faces. She did not think about the spectra she classified them. She simply recognized them. But for the discovery that some consider one of the most important to 20th century astronomy, we go to Henrietta Leavitt. A lot of this comes from Bill Sanford's really helpful email, as well as George Johnson's excellent book, Miss Leavitt's Stars, for having collected the really small amount of biographical material that is actually known about her. We know she was partially deaf, even deafer some report when she was bent over her stars and they were trying to talk to her. But we don't know why and since when, evidently not from birth, as in her second year at Oberlin, she entered as a music student. We know she took time off from her work to travel, but we don't know to where or why. And though we know plenty about how her discoveries were used by others, we don't know how she felt about it. If she wished she was out there extrapolating their possibilities amongst those learned men, or if she was happy to just proceed along to her next project. Henrietta started on as a Harvard computer in 1893. She was volunteering for post-grad credit while attending Radcliffe. She had some means, so she was on as a volunteer, though later she was paid. And as she was a student still, she could publish her discovery, a luxury not afforded some of the other Harvard computers. Her charge was something called stellar photometry. The way that the photos were taken, brighter stars would leave larger spots. So their size on the plate was a measure of their brightness. So she'd stare at them through an eyepiece, compare them to stars whose magnitude was known, and use that to figure out the brightness magnitude of these other stars. Uh One of her more important tasks was to search for variables, stars that would wax and wane in brightness, some of these cycles taking days, some taking months or weeks. She could tell this by lining up the plates from the same patch of sky from one time of year to the next. 
Most of these dots would line up and cancel each other out, but some would appear differently in each plate, bigger and therefore brighter in October, smaller and therefore dimmer in December. So Henrietta, as well as these other computers, would put up the plates against each other and measure the variations of these stars by writing it on India ink on the plates. One type of these stars is commonly known as a Cepheid. Over a period of years, Henrietta gathered these figures. Nowadays, the work would be done by grad students or by actual computers, but at this moment in time, she was a single person, and she was poring over all of these plates herself, watching the star fields evolve over the months that these photographs were taken. Wow. Then in the early 20th century, she put her focus on one particular area, the Magellanic Cloud. What was very important about this focus was, unlike her previous work in varied areas, looking at pinpricks on a plate that we had no way of knowing if they were nearby neighborhood stars that were dim or extremely far off, huge and blinding giants, the stars were within the Magellanic Cloud were ones that we had reason to believe were all, relatively speaking, about the same distance from our planet. Therefore, ones that seemed to be the same brightness to us on Earth could be assumed to be the same intrinsic brightness since their distance from us was around the same. Hmm. You know, astronomically speaking. <laughs> Which uh, is kind of, unimag- <laughs> kind of unimaginable. So when she started investigating the Magellanic Cloud, first she found dozens and then hundreds of these variable stars. In 1908, she published a paper in the Annals of the Astronomical Observatory of Harvard College called 1,777 Variables in the Magellanic Clouds, describing the variable stars that she'd found. At the very end, she included a table of 16 stars, comparing their brightness and the length of their variations, and wrote a modest yet groundbreaking sentence. It is worthy of notice that the brighter variables have the longer periods. In other words, the brighter the star, the longer, the longer it takes to complete its cycle of brightness and dimness. Mm-hmm. After delays caused by family troubles, her work on other projects and travel, in 1912, her follow-up was published in the Harvard Circular under the byline of Edward Pickering. He wrote to the Harvardites, The following statement regarding the periods of 25 variable stars of the small Magellanic cloud has been prepared by Miss Levitt. She broadened her data set to 25 stars, and still her earlier discovery held forth. She wrote, A remarkable relation between the brightness of these variables and the length of their periods will be noticed. Since the variables are probably at nearly the same distance from Earth, their periods are apparently associated with their actual emission of light. Mm -hmm. So to paraphrase the analogy used in Johnson's book, imagine you're in a large and seemingly limitless field, and before you, you see the lights of many lights of many different brightnesses, but they're all far away, so it's hard to judge exactly how bright they are. If you see a dim light, is it a 20-watt bulb extremely close to you, or a 100-watt bulb extremely far away? But what if these lights aren't burning constantly? What if they're dimming and brightening in different patterns? Not in the extremely slow periods of the stars, but suppose it was a certain amount of times in a minute, and you could tell that any time that blinked three times in a minute was actually a 10-watt bulb, and anything that had one cycle in it was actually a 100-watt bulb. You can use the period to determine the light's actual brightness, and then compare that with how bright it appears to you to figure out how far away it is. If light B that has one cycle in a minute appears to be nine times dimmer than light A on the same cycle, then you know by the inverse square law that light adheres to that light B is actually three times as far away as light A. If you find out the distance of one of these lights of each type, you can leapfrog back and forth and chart out the distances of all of the lights of that type. So this was extremely helpful as a measurement of relative distance. After all, you had to get those first figures somehow to extrapolate the rest, but it was still revolutionary compared to the previous methods, 
which was mostly limited to something called the parallax effect. Mm-hmm. So basically, the parallax effect says that the amount that an object's position in relation to you changes when you move your own position tells you something about its distance from you. So if you're on the street and you walk 10 feet in either direction, the angle of the lamppost across the street from you will have changed dramatically in comparison to you, but a faraway mountain to, won't appear to have changed much, its position. Mm-hmm. It's like when you do like one eye closed and then the other eye closed. Exactly. And mm-hmm. yeah, so something in your room will appear to shift a lot, but like, you know, a building that's across the river from you is not really going to look like it's changed much. Um, because it's distance from you. Mm -hmm. So the Earth's orbit of the sun takes its millions of miles. So parallax was useful to judge distances within our own neighborhood, so to speak. But intergalactic measurements needed another method since things were so far away that even the millions of miles that that were different from, you know, June to December aren't enough for it to have shifted enough for us to be able to figure out the distance. A method that was more useful was supplied by Henrietta and her Cepheids. Fortunately, Cepheids are really common stars, those variable ones that she measured. Extremely far away objects could now be measured without the our position observing it needing to change. Mm-hmm. Very important because we, I mean, 60 years after all of this happened, we only then started trying to launch things out of our solar system and Voyager hasn't even left our solar system yet, so... Mm-hmm. Galactically speaking, (laughs) we're not going to be able to change our position all that much for quite a long time. Henrietta's timing was also important, as shortly after she made this discovery, another astronomer found the distance of one of those Cepheids within our own galaxy by another means, and that gave all the other theoretical astronomers in the community something to calibrate their measurements with, using Henrietta's discovery as a sort of yardstick. When they figured out the distance of that one star and how bright it appeared on Earth, all the other stars that had that star's period, their distance could be determined. Cepheids could be used as a so-called standard candle. If you knew their type and knew how bright they appeared to us on Earth, then you could find out how far away they were. Uh, Henrietta never got a Nobel, though Edwin Hubble, who used her ruler extensively to unlock the breadth of the universe, was not shy about saying that she deserved one. So Hubble, by working with the, the color readouts and the spectrographs, he was able to notice the redshift of other galaxies and deduce that they were receding from us. This is an offshoot of the Doppler effect, which you'd notice from if you're standing next to an ambulance, its tone sounds the same. But if it's approaching you and then speeding away from you, you'll notice it sounds different as it's approaching you and different when it's receding from you. Mm -hmm. And this is also true for visible light. So the tone of light from these stars shifts towards the red, as these galaxies move away from Earth. Mm -hmm. And the redder it is, the faster it's moving away from us. Mm -hmm. So Hubble told everyone that the universe was expanding. Oh, fuck. (laughs) I just think of, uh, (laughs) sorry, in in Annie Hall, when when Woody Allen's a child, and he's like, the universe is expanding. I like how probably in the same city at the same time, Woody Allen was noticing this and getting neurotic about it, and Carl Sagan was finding out about it and going, wow, that's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, so the sea feeds in the galaxies gave him measurements that confirmed this once he was able to use Henrietta's yardstick. 
These measurements were the foundation of the Big Bang Theory, i.e., well, if things are expanding, then there's a certain amount of energy that must have been expanded a long time ago to make things like galaxies move away so fast from each other. This was also helpful in calculating the age of the universe. Henrietta's hard work and insight into the extensive data that she poured over has given theorists an extremely important tool to unlock the mysteries of the cosmos. And had she not noticed this, it might have taken years into the computing age for these patterns to be noticed by software, and our knowledge of the universe might be way behind what it is now. Wow. But she continued on with Pickering's various projects, working through the last years of her life on the North Polar sequence, calculating the brightness of stars in a certain cluster that Pickering was convinced was such a constant that it could be used to calibrate all other measurements of the stars in the sky. It was an exhaustive study uniting measures of 299 different photographic plates, with the specifications of each telescope needing to be taken into account, along with where and when the photos were taken and where the stars were on the plate. As Johnson said in his book, PhDs have been awarded for less. Mm-hmm. She was tinkering around more with the stars that she saw in the Magellanic Cloud, as well as refining her North Polar sequence, while being pestered by many astronomers in the like of Harlow Shapley, the new Harvard Observatory Chair, to apply her mind to this or that star or this or that proposed measure of distance. After her paper, though, she was suffering from ill health and worked less and less, but when the census taker visited her house in Cambridge in 1920, she proudly listed her profession as astronomer. Ooh. Henrietta died in 1921 of cancer. After her death at the Harvard Observatory, a legend was built up when people continued seeing the light at the window of her desk burn late into the night and claimed her ghost was still there, bent over her stars. Hmm. Um, how many bought this, who knows, but one person who didn't buy it was Cecilia Payne, later Payne Kaposchkin, who I mentioned earlier. She knew full well that she was the one sitting at that desk two hours of the night. She never worked with Henrietta, but later spoke out on her legacy. Oh, and just incidentally, while writing her thesis, Cecilia put forth the then-controversial, now-accepted observation that the sun was mostly hydrogen. From oh. her start at Henrietta's old desk, she later became the first woman promoted to full professor at Harvard, and then the first to head a department there. And the whole time she championed the achievements of these first Harvard computers. Cool. Yeah. Thanks for listening. I'm LP. And I'm Lindsay. Listen to us next time when we're talking about funny dames. She thinks she missed the train to Mars. She's out back counting stars. Dude, I no. Yes, I think I remember. Very well, that. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I was I was rather high during astronomy class. <laughs> I should have paid more attention. <laughs>